Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, thanks for uh, braving the uh, the freezing drizzle and uh, snowpocalypse number two, right? Um, which not so much, but uh, appreciate you guys coming and joining us this morning. If you're a guest with us, thanks for being here. Um, uh, we do appreciate you uh, stopping in. I hope this service will be a blessing to you. Um, before we jump in this morning, I want to give you some important reminders. First of all, next week we won't be here. Okay, Next week we will have our Trailhead United service over at Edwardsville High School. Uh, we're going to be meeting in the Drama Center at 10 a.m. Uh, we launched this church eight years ago uh, with two services, so we've been a multi-service church uh, from our start. So in some ways we're, we're one church with many groups. And um, this is our opportunity. We try every year to get everybody into one space. Um, so that we can all worship God together and uh, celebrate everything God is doing in us and through us uh, as a community. And, and so that's next week. It's going to be a big morning of celebration, a lot of joy, um, and uh, would love for you to join us. Um, I would advise you, uh, especially family, uh, members, and regular attenders, show up early. Uh, trailhead time, not so much. Um, uh, show up early, you know, so you can navigate the parking lot and, um, uh, you know, find the, the drama center. And, and, uh, and then I'm going to encourage you to sit front and center, right? Uh, take the least attractive seats. Um, family, uh, we sacrifice. Why? For the good of our guests. Uh, every year we have people coming to our celebration service uh, purely because they got an invite, right? Celebrations are fun to attend, and uh, uh, we have people now that are regular attenders, members and regular attenders, faithful part of our community. Their first taste of Trailhead was coming to one of these celebration events because someone invited them. And they're like, oh, that's safe. We'll go, we'll go attend that. That'll be, that'll be interesting. And they get a small taste of who we are. They get a small taste of what we're about. And so we want to make sure we're creating space um, for our guests. Uh, and the reality is, um, if our entire family shows up, it's going to be a pretty packed house anyway. And so um, I encourage you to show up early, um, show up ready to sit next to your neighbors uh, closely. Um, and man, let's have some fun. That's 10 a.m. next Sunday uh, at um, Edwardsville High School. There will be people pointing you. If you don't know where the Drama Center is, just walk in the front doors. It's very easy. We will help you get there. Um, secondly, uh, we are moving our Saturday night service. Uh, our Saturday night service is, you know, that whole thing, doing two days. It's a huge experiment for us. First time doing this thing, and um, it's gone really, really well. We did find that, you know, when we launched it last fall, we had a lot of momentum, and then it kind of, we had some people not coming out, showing up on Sunday morning. So we all had a lot of conversations come to find out that, that it was challenging for our families, the, the start time. And, and so we're moving the start time from 6 o'clock to 5 o'clock, starting on February 2nd. There is no Saturday night service next week because there's Trailhead United. Um, but the week after that, the Saturday night service will begin at 5 o'clock. If you've been thinking about checking it out uh, and possibly joining us, I would encourage you to come out, um, but make sure you come at 5, okay? Uh, and one final thing I want to let you know about, on February 2nd, when we launch the 5 o'clock service and we have a normal mar morning services here, we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, I am really excited, and honestly, I have um, just a heaviness in my soul about this series. I've been working on this series for over a year. Um, and it's called Every Tribe, Every Tongue, uh, The Gospel, Race, and the Church. Um, and uh, we're going to be spending five weeks taking a look at a theology of race. Um, happy Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Um, I'll tell you what, even as I was working my way through this weekend and preparing for this sermon, and, you know, I just get on Twitter and find out who was doing what, I, the amount of, of overwhelmingly disheartening news that assaults us every single week um, is overwhelming, right? Um, we are a polarized society, and race is one of the areas where polarization takes place. And, and as a result, we're seeing, um, man, this become a new battlefield, right? The reality is, over time, it's a myth that over time, racism goes away or is diminished. It simply adapts to a new culture. It finds new ways. You know how I know that? Because it's been true ever since the Tower of Babel. Ever since the Tower of Babel, God, God in an effort to, well, I'm preaching my sermons in advance, but here's, here's the thing. Um, God split up humankind. It was an act of judgment, but it was actually an act of protection because he was protecting us from all the evil we could do had we stayed unified 
uh, in our rebellion against him. And so he, he brought in divisions of language and people groups and identity, and that led to geographic separation and the birth of the races. And, and that division, um, here's the thing, when we look at Revelation chapter 7, and we see the picture of the church um, coming before God at the end of time, we see the effects of the Tower of Babel completely erased, but not the diversity. Every tribe, every tongue, God sanctifies the diversity. He doesn't reverse it, right? There is a gift that has come to us even through um, uh, what was um, an act, in a sense, an act of, of judgment that was meant to limit our ability to do evil, right? God is going to reverse the Tower of Babel. He's going to turn it on its head, but he's going to redeem the diversity that came from it. When we look at a theology of race, here's the thing, you guys. My goal is not to shame anybody, right? Our culture loves shame. Um, man, my, my Twitter feed right now is lit up with shame. People who feel very, very justified, and we should shame these people. We should out these people. We should, right? We, it's the modern pillory. We want to put them in the little stocks and throw rotten fruit at them because we think they are so miserable and horrible. They deserve um, punishment. Um, shame... I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to guilt you. I don't, I don't want to exhaust you. I'm not going to take a political side. There's a theology of race that I think can free us to engage racial discussions in redeeming ways that can enable us to be salt in light, right? Salt in a culture that is rotting, light in a culture that is dark, that will enable us to be a city set on a hill, a city within a city and a culture within a culture that we can be peacemakers for the gospel, representatives of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. But it requires us to be rooted in a biblical understanding of, of racial identity and, and how those things, and God's intent in those things. I think it's going to be redeeming. I think it's going to be encouraging. I think it's going to be uh, uplifting, and I think it's going to be empowering as we seek to be representatives of the gospel in our world today. So we're going to be launching that series on February 2nd. I am inviting in a very good friend of mine, Aaron Layton, who's going to be helping me lead through that series. Um, Aaron Layton is a, a pastor over at The Journey, our sending church from back in the day, and, and um, um, I'll introduce him more later. But, um, but I'm encouraging. Uh, hopefully, look forward to this. And, and if it makes you nervous, welcome to the club, okay? Um, but, but, um, but come with your heart ready right, and your mind's ready to engage, um, because I think there's some, some beautiful things we can, we can learn from the Word of God that will help us to engage this in a healing and healthy way, all right? Okay, so grab your Bibles. We're going over to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12, we're looking at verses 1 through 8. Um, if you're using one of our Bibles, turn over to page 947, page 947. Romans chapter 12. We are in the middle of a three-week series. This is week two of a three-week series that we're calling Serve. I'm being really subtle here. Not so much. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just being blunt. Um, this, ser this sermon series is about um, serving, about our need for you to serve and your need to serve, right? In this passage, Paul is calling us to get off the bench and get some skin in the game, right? He's telling us we, we need to serve, um, because it's the way God designed it, and, and, and it will ultimately not only bless the body, but bless us, right? Um, because here's the thing, over the course of this three weeks, again, I'm not guilting you, I'm not shaming you, I'm not going to try to manipulate you, right? That's not the gospel. What I'm going to do is invite you. I'm going to unpack what I believe are the gospel principles that lead us, that should be awakening within us, a desire to serve, and put that invitation in front of you, because it's an invitation to life, right? Um, it unpacks the heart of our discipleship pro, uh, uh, philosophy, the three G's. Um, I'm going to just very quickly, if you're not familiar with it, if you haven't been around us, we've unpacked it in the past. The three G's are very, very simple. God's grace, our gratitude leads to growth. Okay? God's grace, right? God's justice was met by God's mercy on the cross. When Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die and rose again that we might be forgiven. And then the outpouring of that toward us is God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved love. He is in a posture of invitation. He loves us and invites us to be loved. When we receive that invitation, when we believe in Christ, that is what we call faith. 
Faith, very simply, is responding to God's initiation in love. Faith is us saying, I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust your salvation project more than I trust my own salvation project. I trust your will for me, your desire for me more than I trust my own heart, right? That's faith, and faith leads to a profound experience of gratitude. Gratitude is what happens when, when you are humbled by a gift and take joy in the giver. That's a whole lot different than just giving thanks, right? When someone gives you something, you're like, oh, thanks. It was a gift that didn't humble you, and you didn't necessarily take joy in the giver. But every once in a while, you get a gift that you're like, holy cow, you're giving me that? How did you even know I needed that? How is, right? And so you're humbled by the gift, and you, are, you take joy in the giver. You look at them, and, and that gift of love awakens within you a responding love for them. That's gratitude. It is a profound experience of the soul. And gratitude propels us. Gratitude is an energy that pushes us into growth. To, to do what we previously didn't think we could do, to grow in ways we previously didn't know we could grow, to, to challenge things in our own hearts we didn't think we could ever challenge, to, to be vulnerable or to, to be generous in ways we never thought we could. And what happens when we're growing is it pushes us out of our comfort zone into our growth zone. And when we're in our growth zone, it kind of hurts, which causes us to push back into grace. We need a renewed experience the love of God. We need God to pour out his love afresh within our hearts that we can stay in that growth zone so that we can don't pull back into self-protection. We, we stay engaged, right? And, and as we engage grace, it reawakens the experience of gratitude, which propels us into growth. That is the dynamic cycle of grace in our lives that transforms us and frees us, that, that, tr- that delivers us into genuine freedom, genuine joy, right? That, that, that equips us to actually become the people we know God has created us to be, right? Following Christ isn't about believing in Jesus, getting your ticket to heaven, and then getting down to the hard work of obeying rules and getting moral. That's religion and that's death, right? Grace is a dynamic force that God has set loose in our hearts, and, and we are meant to engage that, be transformed by that, continually respond to that, and grow in it. Service is absolutely essential for that process. Service is absolutely essential. It's one of God's ordained ways that we are to grow in grace. It is designed, right? God has has gifted us that we might serve and in serving might taste more deeply of the grace he has given us. So that's where we're going. Let's take a look at our passage um, and and we'll unpack this. Looking at Romans chapter 12, we are looking at verses 1 through 8. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of his faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us then, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, last week, uh, we started with verses six through eight because I'm working my way backwards <laughs> through this passage. Um, so we, we looked last week at, at the spiritual gifts, the list of, of spiritual gifts that, that, that God has given us. Um, and we unpacked our first defeater belief. Now remember, a defeater belief is something you believe that keeps you from believing something else or experiencing more. It is an unexamined attitude or assumption that you just believe so deeply it doesn't even cross your mind that you should challenge it. I believe there are defeater beliefs that block us from entering into service in the community of God's people. There are defeater beliefs that keep us from moving into service in the church and engaging the local church, right? Last week, we examined the defeater belief um, that that, uh, I am not uniquely qualified and I am not uniquely needed. Right? That's what we unpacked last week. I am not uniquely qualified, and I am not uniquely needed. And of course, we, we expose that for the lie that it is. Uh, every single believer, w- when you become a believer in Christ, the Spirit of God comes in and supernaturally empowers certain natural talents that you might use those talents in service to the church. 
that you might use those servants in, in service to others. God moves in love towards you and then gives you unique gifts that you might work in love toward others. You are unique in your wiring. Nobody else has your history. Nobody else has your gifting. Nobody else has, has your unique set of personalities. You are unique in your gifting, and therefore you are uniquely needed in the church. Nobody else can be you. Nobody else can bring the set of gifts you have to bear in the church. The Spirit of God has uniquely wired you that you might be a unique blessing. So it is a lie to think I am not uniquely gifted or uniquely needed. That's simply not true. The Word of God tells us that that you are uniquely wired. The Spirit of God has uniquely gifted you that you might be a blessing. He has moved in love towards you that you might then move in love toward others. Now, even with the snowpocalypse last week, we did have a, a really healthy response to that sermon message. Um, we track our online um, engagement on our serve page on our website. We had 10 people uh, volunteer to serve last week, which was, which was really encouraging. Um, and here's the thing, I want to keep up that pace. And I'll tell you why. Um, we have around a dozen different volunteer teams serving at Trailhead. Serving the people in Trailhead, serving on the mission into the community, right? Serving, serving in ways that, that bring blessing, right? We're all wearing t-shirts this week of, of a kickball tournament that, that Trailhead students put on. Um, that's one of our volunteer teams, right? Is, is, is working with our high school students and, and, and helping create a space for our middle school and high school students that they might have identity and connection and, 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 and all the rest of that, right? Um, we have around a dozen different volunteer teams. And here's what I can tell you when I talk to my different leaders. There's not a single leader who doesn't need more volunteers, right? When I talk to my leaders, what I hear is, we're, we're doing well, Steve, we're running, but it's because of our, man, our faithful, faithful servants. We have people on these teams, man, they are just going above and beyond, which is really encouraging, right? Um, but here's the thing, I don't want my faithful servants to become sacrificial servants. I don't, I don't want anybody dying around here. Right? We don't want to leave carnage on the side of the road as we're pushing forward into growth. Right? We, we want healthy teams so that our faithful servants can be honored and they can stay healthy. Right? That, that means we need more people involved. We are a growing church. And as a growing church, we need a growing body of people to serve in the church. We have, over the last two years, grown significantly with people, but we have not grown significantly with servants. In fact, over the last quarter, we actually have fewer people serving in Trailhead Kids than we did before. And that's because people get exhausted. People get tired. People need to take a break. And that means we, we need people who are attending to be serving. Trailhead Kids is our largest and most complex volunteer organization. We serve just under 100 kids every single week. They are some of the softest hearts in this building. You want to talk about effective gospel ministry. You want to talk about being able to actually impact somebody and help shape their perspective and understanding of God and impact the world through that. Man, working with the kids is, is one of the most um, long-term, vital, and necessary ways um, we serve. Um, but Trailhead Kids right now needs around 40 volunteers. In fact, we set a goal that by uh, the end of this season, in other words, by the summer, we're going to add um, 40 volunteers to that team. That'll help us get to a healthier rotation. That's not everybody we need, but it will help us get to a healthier rotation because what happens right now is, is, is people are like, man, I... I, I, I'm volunteering, but there's a gap over here. I'll volunteer there too, right? I'll, I'll fill all these gaps. I'll fill multiple positions because they love the ministry and they love what's happening. And we want to make sure that we're growing in health um, even as we grow in size. And so I'm going to encourage you um, to, to engage, right? We're now moving into what we call our come and see season in, in the church rhythms. So the spring from February through May, uh, is our come and see season. It's a way of describing the fact that we get a lot of visitors coming and checking us out in this season. People that'll come once, maybe twice, maybe three times. They're, they're just kind of peeking their head over the fence into Trailhead to find out if it's something that, that you know, is, this, is this for me? Is there something here that would engage me? Is this something that, that um, would, would, I would enjoy being part of? Is, is this relevant to my life? Um, and, and here's the funny thing. I would have never guessed this, but over the last eight years, we've tracked it. Our largest attendance generally happens somewhere in February every year, which is the weirdest thing ever. Nobody ever told me to expect that, okay? But, but for some reason, February is like this peak where all the visitors show up at once, and, and we tend to have a peak somewhere in February 
of our highest attendance, and then come next fall, that becomes our normal attendance number. Okay, so whatever the peak is in February, that becomes the norm uh, in the fall, which means we need to be growing in volunteers now if we're going to be healthy for them. Make sense? Like if we're, if we're on a skeleton crew now, man, we're, we're running toward, toward a, an unhealthy place in the future. So being totally upfront, we need you serving. We need you involved, right? God's doing incredible things and we need you to serve. But here's where I want to go. You need to serve. You need to serve. God wired you to serve. So this week, um, we're going to be taking a look at verses 3 through 5. And in these verses, Paul is arguing that you should use your gifts. But in order to effectively use your gifts, you need to develop the proper mindset and character set. Right? To effectively use your gifts, you need to be rooted in humility and growing in love. If you're not rooted in humility and growing in love, you're either going to use your gifts in an unhealthy way, which means you're going to end up resenting people you're serving. You're going to grow frustrated. You're going to be low energy. You're going to be exhausted all the time because you're trying to do everything in your own energy, refilling your own tank of encouragement. Or you're just going to check out and make excuses for not serving. If we're going to effectively use our gifts to grow in grace, we need to be rooted in humility and growing in love. And and to do that, it means we're going to have to expose another defeater belief. So our defeater belief for this morning is this. I'm too good to serve, or it's ugly twin sister, I'm not good enough to serve. And the reason I call them twin sisters is because one is driven by pride and one is driven by shame. And for whatever reason, man, I just got in my head the picture of the, uh, the two little girls that pop up in every Stephen King movie, you know, the ones that are at the end of the hallway and you're like, that's not a hallway I want to walk down, right? It's, it's, it's scary. Um, these two forces are two sides of the same coin. They're actually two manifestations of pride. Now, the thing is, I think there are more, more people on side A than side B, if I'm just being honest. I think there are more people that incline toward the, I'm too good to serve. And there are, there are, but there are a significant number who are on the, I'm not good enough to serve side too. But I want to address both. Now, here's the thing with this. Um, if you're on the, I'm too good to serve side, you probably don't identify with that immediately because, because we are masters at masking our own motivations from ourselves. We are, we are spin doctors. We, we are, we are propagandists when it comes to our own motivations, right? We very, very seldom are going to be that blunt with ourselves. Walk in and go, well, I'm too good to serve here, right? I'm important, right? I, I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. I'm very important. I have many leather-bound books in my apartment. Smells of rich mahogany, right? Very few of us are, are going to be walking in with that kind of overt arrogance. But I'll tell you how it manifests itself. It manifests itself in entitlement. When I feel entitled to be served and not served. When I feel entitled, man, I deserve a morning where I don't have to work. I deserve a... Man, people don't know my life. They don't know how busy I am. They don't know how much stress I have. They don't know the fact that my little angels are actually little demons and they're drying out my soul. They, they, don't, they don't understand that, that between life and home and church and sports and, and everything else, I've got nothing left to give. I feel entitled, right? Calgon, take me away. I deserve a break today. Every commercial you could possibly quote goes through your mind because it just feeds your sense of entitlement. That's pride. I'm too good to serve. See, what else happens when we're, when we're prideful? is we end up looking at our own strengths and comparing them to other people's weaknesses. Or we look at our own suffering and compare it to other, other people's well-being, and it distorts our vision. And we start thinking, well, it's good for them to serve, but, you know, I, I deserve an out. I get a, I get a get-out-of-service-free card, right? I, I'm not the one who needs to be doing that. So pride masks its motivation, but you can always find it. Look for the entitlement. Where do you feel like you deserve what other people don't? Where do you feel like you deserve to be served? Where do you feel like you deserve to be entertained? Where do you feel like you deserve a break because that's, you know, my life is whatever. That, that's pride. I'm too good to serve. Sometimes it is more overt. Some people walk in and they're like, well, I will serve, but I'm going to serve in something in a way that, that's appropriate to my skills, to my stage of life, to my experience, to my stature and my, right? I'm going to contribute in ways that, that make sense to who I am. I'm, I'm not going to serve in ways that, that are beneath me. Right? Now, shame is, is the exact opposite. Shame almost always bears its teeth. 
There's no propaganda on shame because pride, when we're, when we're, when we're caught in pride, we don't want to look at it. When we're caught in shame, it's trying to chew us up. And so shame is usually really, really obvious, right? You'll feel that. When, when, and, and, and usually it's very, very overt. You, you shouldn't serve here because you don't belong here. Right? Some people have that, that voice that comes in and says you're underqualified. Right? Pride says you're overqualified. Shame comes in and says you're, you're underqualified. If, if they really knew who you are, they really knew what you struggled with. If they, if they knew that every single week you go home and you struggle about whether or not you even believe in God, if they, if they knew who you really were, they wouldn't even have you here, let alone have you serve. Right? Shame very, very seldom hides its teeth. And so if you're struggling there, more than likely, it, it, it's blunt and it's painful. Whether you're struggling with pride or with shame, you need to hear the truth. And that's this, your, your, savior, your servant savior calls you to be a servant follower. Your servant Savior calls you to be a servant follower. You are not too good to serve, right? Jesus, right? The CEO of all CEOs, right? He's the one that showed up with, with probably the most complex human task ever entrusted to anyone, the salvation of all mankind, right? He was, he was called to live the life no one else could live and then die the death no one else could die, right? And, and, and yet the last night he's on earth, when he's, when he's with his disciples, what does he do? He washes their feet. Which would have been the job of the servant's servant. That was the lowest job possible. Nobody wanted to wash people's nasty feet. But Jesus put on a towel and he washed his... They objected. They're like, what are you doing? Don't, what are you... He's like, no, 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 no. You need to know who I am. And you need to know what I'm really calling you to. I am a servant savior calling you to be a servant follower. You are not too good to serve. You are not entitled to what other people aren't. If Jesus himself could wash his disciples' feet, then we as followers of Jesus need to be ready to serve. Now the flip side is also true. If you're in Christ, do you really think you can disqualify yourself from his grace? Do you think your sin is so great you can overcome the resurrection of Christ? Do you see how that in and of itself is pride? You are not disqualified. You are, do you think that the sin working in you is greater than the power of God working through you? Do you not know that in your brokenness and in your flaws and in your doubt and in your struggle, you can still be a blessing to others because it's God working through you? It's not your strength coming to bear. It's God's strength working through your weakness. Your servant Savior calls you to be a servant follower. That is the truth. Paul opens this up in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. I love the way he opens that. For by the grace given to me. This is the Apostle Paul, right? He could have just been showing up and be like, Hey, y'all, stop being lazy. Get to work. And it would have been okay, Right? He could have been like, you need to do this. He could have commanded it. He could have, but what he, he starts with, by the grace given to me. What he's saying is, I'm a spiritual father talking to my spiritual children, and I've tasted something I want you to taste. I've experienced something I want you to experience. There's, there's an experience of grace you need to have by the grace given to me. I exhort you to join me in that grace. Paul was uh, an interesting guy before he became a believer. Extremely competitive, very comparative. He was a driven type A guy. He was talented. He was intelligent. I doubt he was very good looking by the way people react to him, but it doesn't matter when you're powerful, right? We all know that. And so this is a guy that, that people, people respected. He was a Pharisee. That means he was highly educated in the best schools. He was intelligent. He was thoughtful. But beyond that, he's called a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which means he graduated summa cum laude in the school of pride. He was at the top of his class. He had a greater zeal, a greater intelligence, a greater ability than all of his peers, and he was at the top of the heap. He looked around, and he compared himself on the ladder, and he was near the top, right? He was near the top. Um, do you know what ladder I'm talking about? The ladder of comparison? We all, we all tend toward it because it's, it's a human thing. It's a cultural thing. We tend to evaluate 
our worth compared to others, depending on where we stand on the ladder. And, and your ladder is going to be unique to you, but you're going to have one. Right? For some of you, it is your job, your, your position, your title, the respect, your income, the kind of car you drive or the watch you wear. Right? Some of you are going to look, look around constantly comparing where you stand to others. For some of you, it's, it's going to be your family. How do my kids behave in public? How good do they look? How do people perceive us? How do, how do people? For some of you, it's going to be, it could be anything. But here's what happens is when, when you're living life in comparison, you're constantly looking around to find out where you stand in comparison to others. And, and you determine where you are on the ladder. And you look up the ladder, and whoever's above you on the ladder, you're jealous of. You're envious of them because they have what you don't yet have. And then you look down the ladder, and you despise them. Because if they were just smart enough, intelligent enough, loving enough, creative enough, hardworking enough, they too could be where you are and you feel entitled to your superiority over those that, are, that you perceive as being beneath you and, you and you feel racked by jealousy for the people that are above you. That way of looking at life is exhausting. And Paul says, man, I have found a completely new way of looking at life. It's founded in grace. I have been delivered from my need to continually compare myself to others to find out how I'm doing. By the grace given to me, I appeal to each one of you, view yourself with, with sober judgment. See, pride is an intoxicant. It, it, it makes you drunk. It, it, it makes you see yourself in funny ways, right? When you're drunk, some things seem bigger than they are and some things seem smaller than they are and there are things that are there that you don't even see, right? And it's just as true in your soul. When you are drunk on pride or in shame, you tend to overemphasize either, either your flaws or your strengths and you tend to underestimate other people's flaws and strengths and, and you're constantly comparing yourself in a, in a drunken stupor that creates a sense of worth and, and shame and, 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 and none of it's based in reality. He says, man, you need to have a sober judgment. You need to have a sober judgment. You need to see clearly and the only way to have a sober judgment is to be rooted in humility. Understanding your strengths without being puffed up by them. Understanding your weaknesses without being crushed by them. Being able to see yourself accurate but without trying to prove your worth or earn your acceptance. It is humility that grounds you in your strength. It is humility that frees you to truly become who you've created, been created to become. He's, man, by the grace given to me, man, I appeal to you. Reject the false paradigm. Think of yourself, man, with sober judgment. And if you're going to do that, Paul says, you're going to have to have a whole new paradigm for life. The latter paradigm doesn't work in the kingdom of God, right? Because we have a God who, who, who doesn't work that way, man. That's not his paradigm. What's the paradigm that, that, that we should have? Well, instead of seeing life and the church as a ladder, where some people are above us and some people are beneath us, Man, we need to see the church as a body. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, um, he says this. For as, one, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. He's giving us a completely new paradigm for understanding how we fit into the community of the church. How we should view ourselves in relationship to others. Not through comparison but through love. We are all individual members of one body, and the whole is greater than its sum part. We are to see our relationship to others, not in comparison, but in community. My worth isn't based on what I bring compared to others, but what I bring with others, and what I've received and been given through the Spirit in order to give. We are to see each other as the body. Can you imagine if your body parts started ranking themselves against each other? How dysfunctional that would become, you know, if, if, if your body parts started evaluating their comparative worth before they did anything for the rest of the body? Like your hands are like, oh, we are the producers of the body. We create art. We make music. We, we, we do productive things. We create beautiful things. We, we get things done. I don't know what the colon's up to down there, but we don't need to have any part of it. You know what I'm saying? 
Like or if your toe is, is, is having a bad time, right? You got an ingrown toenail, a little infection, and your toe's like, I'm not worthy to be part of the body. I'm going to check out until I get healthy. Right? How, how would your body function without a big toe, even if it's unhealthy? Your big toe creates stability for the entire structure. How dysfunctional would your body become if each member started considering itself in comparison to all the others? It makes absolutely no sense. It's ludicrous. Every part of the body is dependent on every other part of the body. There is no comparative. That, that paradigm is a complete fiction. It is, it is an illusion of drunkenness. It is not real. Here's the thing. If I'm in crisis, I want every part of my body coming together to help solve that crisis. If I'm in joy, I want every part of my body coming together in celebration of that. Paul says, man, that, that's how you should view your relationship with the church. Not, not a ladder, but a body. You're not too good to serve, and you're not too flawed to serve. You are necessary in your service. When we see ourselves as a vital part of the body of Christ, it does two beautiful things for us. First of all, it humbles us. Because that means there's no part that's more important than any other part. Right? If I'm part of a body, and the whole is greater than its sum... Then, then that means every part is necessary, but no part is greater. And so um, that means that, that, that no one person is greater in the body of Christ than any other person. Christ is the head and we are the body. Right? So that humbles me. Yeah, maybe I bring more experience. Yeah, maybe I bring a more public gift. Maybe I, maybe I, I lead in ways that other people are dependent on, but that's the gift of leadership at work, right? Or, or maybe I'm, I do this or I do that. There's no one part of the body is greater than the others. That humbles us. But it also dignifies us. Because what that means is that there's no part of the body without dignity. There are parts of the body, yeah, maybe they do all their work in hidden and in secret. Maybe they're doing the dirty work, right? But they are necessary. Every gift is just as dignified and just as necessary. So, so when we embrace this paradigm, it humbles us and it dignifies us. It enables us to move in a healthy way into the community of Christ. Rooted in humility, growing in love. Not comparing our worth to one another, not finding our value based on how we compare to others, not looking for platform, not looking for prestige, not looking for people to pat us on the back or give us words of recognition. Coming to the body, recognizing that we need to be rooted in humility and growing in love. So it's from there then Paul calls us into action, right? Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Right? Okay. We have different gifts. We have different wiring. We have different experiences. God has uniquely, spiritually empowered different natural talents in each one of us. Man, get off the bench and get skin in the game. Sir. We're trying to make this as easy as possible here at Trailhead. Um, one of the ways we've done that is trying to leverage technology. If you go to our website on your phone, um, it's going to look like this. If you just click the menu button up there on the right, um, you will see a highlighted box right there. Serve. Isn't that convenient? Uh, if you click that, what it'll do is it'll take you to a job board. And on that job board, all of our leaders are posting critical areas where we need people to volunteer and serve. So you're going to be able to look at all the different ways you can serve and get involved in the church. If you do it at home on your, on your laptop or your desktop or, or you do it on your tablet and you actually get the website, um, it, it, the serve button is right there in the upper right. It's highlighted, okay? It's, it's highlighted. You click that, it's going to take you to the job board, and, and you're going to be able to see how you can plug in and how you can serve. Listen, you have been given gifts of grace that you might, in grace, use those gifts that others might be blessed. And in using your gifts that others might be blessed, you will be blessed. Grace finds its power in transition. We receive grace from God, but we unleash the joy of it, the power of it, the independence of it, the strength of it, as we take the grace we've received and then share it with others. Love was never given to us to simply receive. Love was given to us that we might give it to others. All right, I want to I give you two stories um, to close us out to help illustrate the beauty and the challenge of what I'm describing. The first is a story from my own experience. Uh, in my previous life, I was uh, a principal. I 
I uh, was a principal at a private school and uh, had a unique opportunity. I was invited in. Uh, they, they recruited me to, 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 to lead this school because it was waning. It was, it was a school that was struggling. Um, and they saw the opportunity to transition into health and to grow. And, and then that just appealed to me. I'm, I've always been someone that likes to step into a mess and, and try to help solve it. That's just kind of part of my wiring. And there was a healthy leadership team that I could join. And, and, and so I did this thing. And I joined the, the team. And, and uh, I was six years in that position. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and we did a lot of great things together. And, and part of that was internal, right? Restructuring the academic structure, making sure that our teachers were encouraged and equipped, making sure that, that our program really was um, healthy in all of its ways. Part of it was external, um, reaching out into the community, right? Creating a new image, giving people an idea of who we are and inviting them in to check out what we had to offer. And so open houses became part of our regular rhythm. And open houses were a critical way of inviting people in to, to give them a glimpse of who we were. And I remember one time we had an open house coming and I showed up early to school and, and I walk in and, and man, it just drove me nuts. This is a weird little thing, but it drove me nuts. I was struggling with my cleaning company um, because for whatever reason, they would mop the floors and they would leave this haze over the floors. I, we had beautiful floors, right? And, and people would walk in and, and when they walked in, they would scuff the haze and you could see the beauty, beautiful shine like coming out underneath the scuffing and it drove me nuts. And I'm like, man, we got this open house tonight and there's haze all over the floor and and, and so I decide, you know what? I'm going to mop it. Right? So I take off my suit jacket, I got my tie, my slacks on, and I'm, I'm mopping away, right? Why? Because I, I want to be able to put on the best face possible. Now, there were, there were some sub-motivations there, right? At the time, I probably wasn't as willing to admit them, right? I had my own spin doctor going, right? So one of the sub-motivations was, man, when the, doc, when the teachers come in and see me, they're going to be more inclined to make sure their classrooms are spick and span, that they're bright and shiny. They're going to put in the extra work because they're going to be like, oh man, if Steve leaves like that, I need to lead like that. And then even below that, there was another motivation. It was kind of like, yeah, I'm guessing they're going to admire me, right? Look at Steve. Oh, what a leader. He's up here early, early in the morning mopping floors, right? He's not just the principal, he's, he's the principal janitor, Right? He's willing to do this stuff because he's so dedicated. Right? And so I'm mopping away. And, and of course, that one, that, you know, that's, again, we're, we're really good at masking those motivations. We don't actually bring those to the surface. It was there, though, and, and I knew it was there because when I was mopping away and the first teacher comes in, oh, hey, Mr. Mizell, and they just walk by, and I'm like, hey, hey, um, you should have noticed me, right? And then a whole gaggle of teachers comes in, and they, oh, hey, Mr. Mizell, and, you know, one of them walks across the floor, I just mop, throw something away. Hey, Mr. M, you know, I'm like, what? Come on. I deserve a little attention over here, right? Aren't you impressed? I'm, I'm here, and I'm important, and I'm doing this. So something happened in that moment. Well, and it's happened many, many times since. Um, uh, because the grumbling that's internal, like what ends up happening is I start grumbling. Like, like those ingrates, those, those, those people don't understand what I sacrifice. Those people don't understand what I give. Those people, those people, those people, those teachers, those, right? And then, and then somewhere along the line, it turns into prayer. And I'm like, Lord, those. And as soon as it turns into prayer, all of a sudden, it becomes a different conversation. I'm like, Lord, what is up with those people? <laughs> and I hear back, yeah, what's up with you? Your servant Savior calls you to be a servant follower. You don't mind being a servant as long as you get credit, but you hate being treated like a servant. The servants do what needs to be done, not because they're going to get any applause or a pat on the back or even a thank you. They do it because it's their job. They wash the toilets. They set the table. They clean the messes. A lot of times they're invisible in doing it. Why? Because that's what a servant does. The servant's job is to do what they're told to do. And they do it because that's, that's their, their job. As a servant follower of Christ, I am called to serve Christ, not men. I need to serve not for the recognition, not for the pat on the back, not, not so that people will sing my praise or recognize my glory, but, but that the God who loved me so profoundly and sacrificially might be honored in my life. I need to grow content in the fact that I know that my father smiles in my service in the same way he smiled at his son's service even if no one else sees it, even if no one else recognizes it, right? You know why that's so painful? Why, you know why that feels like humiliation? 
Because humility always feels like humiliation to those that are in pride. Right? We orbit out here in this zone of pride, and, and God, by His grace, occasionally brings us back down to earth to humility. But in order to get there, you often have to, you have to break through the atmosphere, man. And that's fiery. And it can be painful. And it hurts. And it feels like humiliation. But really, it's just you being reintroduced to the sanity of humility. That, that, that you were never designed to orbit out there. You were never designed to compete with God or anybody else. You were designed to be a member of a body taking joy in the fact that you are loved and cherished in your contribution, that your value isn't based on how you compare to others or the ways you contribute or who recognizes your service. You are not more worthwhile. You are not more lovable. You are, you are not more significant based on how people see you. You are who Christ has declared you to be. Service is an absolutely necessary way for us to be reintroduced to humility. It is one of the most powerful sanctifying forces in our lives, y'all. And what, that, what I'm saying there is, is if you, you've been given everything in Christ, but I guarantee you, you're not experiencing everything you've been given. All joy, all freedom, all power. What separates you from what you've been given? Pride. Service is one of the key and critical ways God will free you into the blessings of your salvation. Service is an absolutely necessary function in the Christian life. Why? Because our servant Savior calls us to be servant followers. We need to much more be like, like a CEO I heard about. There was a CEO who was a um, uh, you know, big leader in a big company. Very, very well paid. MBA, um, you know, very recognized, high salary, high power, high significance. He volunteered uh, as part of a, a a nonprofit, and, um, and, and he was on the building team. The problem was he didn't know how to build. In fact, he had absolutely no manual labor skills. And so he's on this building site, and he has absolutely nothing to offer. So who becomes the gopher? He's the guy that gets the tools. He's the guy that brings the workers their, their water. They're like, hey, move that crap over there because that's where we're going next. Get that stuff out of the way. Like he's the one moving the garbage. He's the one digging the holes. He's the one preparing the work site, right? And somebody comes up to him, and they're like, what are you doing? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be a much better investment of your energy and of your skills to, 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 um, to use your business sense, to, to recruit more donors, to, to raise more funds, to create more legal structures, to, to, to help them be more efficient and more effective? Couldn't you bring your higher level leadership skills to bear in a way that could bless the entire organization? What are you doing here on a job site? And his response was very simple. This is where they needed me. He could do more. But he wasn't too proud to do what was needed. Now, I'm guessing he did do more, right? We love to work out of our strengths. I am guessing he did secure more donors and work on their fundraising possibilities and, and, and help create legal structures and do all the other things that he himself uniquely knew how to do. I am sure he brought his strength to bear into the organization. But even though he could do more, he was not too proud to do what others considered less. Man, we need to be more like that. That's our servant Savior. That's our servant. He was, only, he was the only one uniquely qualified to do what only he could do, and yet he was not too proud to do the job of the lowest servant. See, what happens when we do that, y'all, is we get delivered into the beauty and the gift of community. Instead of competition, we discover and experience community. Instead of constantly comparing ourselves to find our worth, our security, our significance, or whether or not we're lovable, we are freed into the joy of knowing we are secure, we are significant, we are loved, because God himself has placed his glory on us, has covered us with his dignity, and has sealed us in his love. We are sons and daughters of God, with no need to compare ourselves to others to find our worth. We are freed to be members of the body, humble enough to do whatever task is necessary, dignified enough to do it with joy. That's freedom. That's the path of transformation and change. Service is an absolutely necessary function within the Christian life. There's a reason God gave you a spiritual gift. And there's a reason that every spiritual gift makes absolutely no context outside of service. It's because service is an absolutely essential function for growth in the Christian life for us to experience the true beauty of community 
the value of others, learning honestly just to love each other instead of compare ourselves with each other, learning how to serve each other instead of being self-self-focused and self-promoting. And I'm telling you, there's a world of freedom and beauty in front of us. We've got to engage. We've got to be involved. Right? God has laid out a path we need to, we need to follow. Our servant Savior calls us. We serve and follow. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer. And um, we're going to share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that, um, man, that you're such a good God. I thank you that, that you love us in spite of the fact that, that we so love being drunk on our own pride. You love us even when we are heaping shame on our own heads. When we think we are too qualified to do your work or when we think our sin is so great that we're unqualified to do your work, when, when we're trying to make ourselves the unique exception in all the universe, Lord, you love us and you dignify us. And I thank you that every time we talk about humility, Lord, that, that, man, I'm just dumbfounded by the fact that you don't just describe its reality, you demonstrate it. Lord, Philippians 2 tells us, the Lord Jesus, even though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, selfishly held onto, but instead emptied himself. Humbled himself taking on the form of a servant and being obedient even to the point of death. Man, what an amazing thing that people so wrapped up in pride are being called out by a God of such profound humility. Lord, call us back to the sanity of humility. Free us from our need to compare. Free us from our need to perform. Free us from our need to to self-improve and condemn others and be jealous and and, and, and the exhausting path of trying to meet our own needs. Free us into that joyful, humble dependence that allows us to rest even as we work. To rest in your approval of us. To rest in your, your love of us. To, to rest in the fact that, that, that you're the one that calls us and equips us and your glory is made manifest in our weakness. And I pray that we would be a community rich in grace, drunk on grace, and sober. Seeing ourselves and each other clearly, learning what it means to genuinely love one another and not use one another, and to serve one another, because we follow a servant day. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.